0: From Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show.
1: Two rivers join where the fish spawn, and one river is filled with traces of gold and the other river is filled with traces of silver. They meet that fish spawns there. You get those eggs out of there and you have the best caviar in the world.
2: That's global food archaeologist John Sutton. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hey everybody and welcome to Travel That Matters, the show where we explore the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences with some of the fascinating people that I've met in my journeys and my work around the world in travel. My guest today, I called him a global food archaeologist in the in the teaser up top. I, I don't think I've ever used those words together before, but I honestly, I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like... John Sutton. He is a food archaeologist, and and honestly, it's one of the most interesting jobs I've ever heard of, one that has taken him to 124 countries all over the world in like remote areas of these countries too, not going to the main cities. He's actually been described as Indiana Jones meets Anthony Bourdain, and he definitely has the stories to back it up. He tells them a lot better than I do, so we're going to get to him right now. But first, I want to let you know, that John is about to launch a brand new podcast called Foods That Matter where he is going to be sharing a bunch of these incredible stories that he has and his really truly unique insights on you know food all around the world ingredients and much much more it's called Foods That Matter so keep an eye out for that show also keep an eye out for the next season of Travel That Matters which is launching in January It's a new MasterChef series, and we've got Wolfgang Puck, Charlie Palmer, and many, many other great chefs talking about all their favorite places to travel. Don't forget to follow the Travel That Matters wherever you get your podcasts, and we always, of course, love to hear your feedback and comments. Also, be sure to stick around to the wrap so you can hear my conversation with another fascinating food expert, Claudia Hanna. But for now, let's get to my conversation with the food archaeologist, the global food archaeologist, John Sutton. Attention fellow foodies, Bruce here, and I've got something truly special to spice up your day. Are you someone who believes that cooking and baking are about more than just following a recipe? I certainly am. Isn't really more about creating moments and memories and flavors that last a lifetime? Travel That Matters is very proud to have partnered with Watkins, the brand that's been helping passionate chefs, bakers and home cooks like you and me flavor every moment. From crafting family recipes to inventing new dishes that are uniquely you, Watkins' innovative flavoring products have been a secret chef ingredient for more than 155 years. Watkins takes great pride in their products being free of artificial flavors and colors and many are also non-GMO. Verified, certified organic kosher certified gluten-free they offer a full line of flavoring products including pure extracts spices herbs grilling seasonings rubs marinades bitters and even artificial dye-free baking sprinkles so if you're as excited as i am to elevate your culinary creations look for the watkins products at your favorite retailer and join the watkins community on instagram facebook tiktok and x by searching for watkins 1868 That's Watkins, 1868. John, thanks for joining us on Travel That Matters. Great to have you here. Appreciate it. So, I usually don't start things off this way. Okay. But I think in this case, I have a good reason to. Can you just please describe to me what it is you do for a living?
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you what people that know me say that I do for a living, because I still don't know actually (laughs) what I do. But people call me the Indiana Jones meets Anthony Bourdain of food, right? Where I'm the one that has to go around the world and find really particular food items and objects and bring them to stores and restaurants here in the U.S. and across the world. So I'm constantly going in valleys and crossing deserts and really looking for really unique items that chefs and people use all over the U.S.
2: I like that description. Indiana Jones meets Anthony Bourdain. Okay, how did you get into that? Like, How do you become that person and get into that line of work?
1: You know, I was going to San Diego State in the early 90s and then I saw an, an ad to go to school in Switzerland, so I thought that would be unique. Went out there, learned the wall was coming down learned all about an integration between a central planned economy and a capitalist economy, ended up in Russia in the early 90s, realized that, you know, J. Paul Getty said, you buy low and sell high, bought vodka really, really cheap and started importing it to the United States as one of the first independent people to do that. It became a private label of a major market chain. And from there, I'd just been looking at stuff all around the world and bringing it in.
2: Okay, so you work with chefs and restaurants as well, correct? I do. And, and so, like, how does that work? You know, does Thomas Keller come to you and say, "I want a new type of berry that no one's ever had before for 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 a dish," or what is? How, how does that play out?
1: Well, let's take one chef out of San Francisco that's brilliant, Charles Fan. He has a restaurant called Slanted Door. So I was in. Sri Lanka. And at that time, Sri Lanka, remember, there were no boats to go out because of the war that was taking place there. When that ended, the fishermen that went out were catching massive tuna, right? Before that, tuna were dying of old age off the coast because they weren't being caught. Well, when I looked, I saw it was really ethical how they were catching the tuna, big hooks, so turtles and small fish couldn't catch it. And then flying it in to San Francisco, and it was so pristine that they were using it for their dishes at the Slanted Door. And that year, he won the James Beard Award for the best chef in the U.S. So that was really unique.
2: How does that even sound? Like, what do you get a lead on? Tuna in Sri Lanka is the next big thing. Like, how do you know to go to Sri Lanka for that?
1: You know what? I'll get a call, or I'll actually explore it myself at these massive food shows. But what I like to do is... I go to the card tables in the back. I'm not in the middle where all these big, large corporations are, because all the fines are with the little guy in the back that can't afford those massive booths in the middle. And then just start talking to them. Hey, what else have you heard? What's unique there? What do you think that I could check out and go visit? And then I'll go to that place and see if it's legitimate or not. And boy, Sri Lanka is really that place in the world that has some of the most unique, exotic, historical foods on the face of the earth.
2: So actually one of my my dream trips, I'm drinking a tea right now as you, that I got in Thailand actually, but oh, wow. um, one of my dream trips is to go to the tea plantations in Sri Lanka and taste my way through Sri Lankan teas. Is, is that something have you have you done that? I'm just I have. curious. I okay. Have. All right. So you're gonna help me out there. Okay, so you're at one of these shows, you get a you get a tip of a place, like describe to us a, a, another place that you just went in and kind of discovered something new.
1: So there's a food show in Guadalajara in Mexico. And I went to the back and I'm like, what's this table got here? And there was a vanilla bean. I'm like, Vanilla bean? Well, I thought vanilla comes from Madagascar or Tahiti. No. Vanilla is from Mexico. It's from a small valley. Genetically, the origination of vanilla is in a small valley called Papantla in Mexico. And I went up to that valley, rented a, rented a car. And my thing is, is in Mexico, find the most beat up, the worst looking, awful looking car and rent that to drive around the country. So I went up there, saw where vanilla is historically made and vanilla what people don't realize is that it is a orchid so it is a vine that goes up a trunk of a palm tree and the vanilla it's not a bean it's actually a stamina that comes out of the flower out of the orchid of a plant which the seeds inside and the bean is essentially pollen that creates this incredible flavor and taste and that was in mexico
2: Okay, so you kind of like discovered the source of, of this vanilla and, and and where to get it in its purest form. Has there been anything like I don't know, again, a berry, a, a vegetable, whatever it is, something that like no one had ever yeah. heard of in the US and you yes. went out there and discovered it?
1: Yes. Yeah. So there's this particular berry that no one no one really knows what it is, is sea buckthorn. Have you heard of sea buckthorn before? No. I don't okay, think. <laughs> so what it is is it is the most potent antioxidant, vitamin C-laden natural substance that exists on the face of the earth.
2: Wow. Okay? Okay.
1: And it's genetically from an area kind of bordering Mongolia and Russia, the all-Tai mountains through there. And in so when I went out there, I, you know, I'm a coffee drinker, I'm a tea drinker, but you have sea buckthorn juice in the morning, it completely changes your constitution. It's just you know, so good for your skin, so good for your mind. And it's something I'm working on bringing into the U.S., but, you know, currently due to export and treasury restrictions, that's all been put on hold. So is it
2: like a super blueberry? Does it look like a blueberry? It's an
1: orange. It's an orange berry that looks like a blueberry, but it's bright orange. And it's very bitter when you when you taste it, so it's sweetened. You know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people sweeten things with sugar,
2: like a cranberry type of.
1: Yeah. So what's great is if you sweeten it with apple juice, it just sounds incredible. So I, you know, I had already gone around and talked to Unify and a couple of distributors because once that enters America, that is going to have a profound impact on diabetes. One's what I call not caffeine that basically keeps you awake. It's a focused drink, and that's a big difference. There's caffeine that just kind of keeps you up there and awake, but then there's drinks that keep you focused. This is the top focused drink in the world, my opinion.
2: I'm all in. Next time you want to go to Mongolia to get some, let me know. Wait, so wait, describe, though, like where you discover it. Is it in Russia or in Mongolia? Like where where is this place where they, they grow these? So
1: it's in Siberia grown in the northern region so it really only has a 3 month cycle to basically bear fruit so it's m- under intense pressure from temperature swings so you're looking at you know 40 50 below in the winter time for months out of the year that just impacts and stresses that out and then you have an, a very powerful sun beating down on this bush that's very hot and that's where that energy comes out of the ground and just puts all of that into that one little berry, that yellow berry, that bright orange. It's just powerful.
2: Okay. So you're going, you know, whether that example or another, like you must have some pretty incredible meals on, on these adventures. And, and and some in some pretty pretty interesting locations, it sounds like. You know, in your recent adventures. Tell us about like some just incredible meal that just like opens your mind to something new.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you kind of a controversial meal and I didn't know at the time and I look back and I, I wouldn't do it again, but this was in Iceland. This was a trip I went to Iceland with a, a group of individuals that had just started a, a company called Blue Apron and we went out there for a gentleman's bachelor party And then we all sat down and the meal came and there's this red piece of meat with kind of a bone, you know, shaved off. and And I ate it and it was like, what is this? It's so juicy. It's so fatty. It's just like one of the most melt in your mouth steaks I've ever had. And it was whale. Yeah. I realized that that's, you know, now you know why people want this so bad. Because you even have found it in places of Los Angeles, smuggled into some sushi restaurants. I because remember it that, is Santa a, Monica,
2: a few years it back. It
1: is a death row meal for a lot of people out there. And any way to continue to ban that, and I and I wish Iceland would just take a pass on it and just no, don't even give somebody the opportunity because... When it comes to food and man, you know, they're not necessarily obeying the rules out there.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and certain things. I think we could draw the line at animals that are smarter than us. So, I you
1: know, there's a lot of things I just won't eat. I don't want to anymore. You know, I don't need to eat anything exotic. I mean, I'm, I'm still alive after going to 124 countries eating a lot of stuff. I just want to stick with the basics.
2: Okay, so 124 countries. What are some of the, your favorite spots for specifically ingredients and cuisine, like the places that have really just stood out to you in all your travels of being incredible destinations for the quality of their ingredients?
1: Sri Lanka, number one. I mean, here's an island that's packed with cardamom, cinnamon, cinnamon. You know, the famous Singapore chili crab, all of those crabs come from Sri Lanka. So all of those big, giant lagoon crabs come from Sri Lanka. The misnomer is that, okay, Sri Lanka is this island off the coast of India. Therefore, it's all, you know, Indian food. Absolutely not. I mean, it's a big seafood. It's an island nation. So you have some of the most amazing curries out of there the use of coconut milk and the reduction of coconut milk with those spices are reducing food down to a level that is so delicious.
2: We're gonna take a quick break, but if you wanna find out why volcanoes and meteors produce the world's best crops, don't go away. So one thing that I believe is that like countries that are near the equator around the world have a lot of similarities in their cuisine, countries that are not near the equator. You know, like what have you seen, you know, going from a Sri Lanka, so it's not Indian food, it's very different, but, you know, to Thailand, to Mexico, to wherever it is, like, what are some of the things that you see and notice from your kind of unique perspective that ties a lot of these cuisines together?
1: You know, I, I think volcanoes do. Some of the most delicious foods come out of that environment. So if you look at Sicily, there's a volcano there. Look at Sicilian food people love. If you look at Naples, there's a volcano there. That volcano grows some of the best tomatoes in the world. But tomatoes are not indigenous to Italy. Tomatoes are from Costa Rica. In fact, on one of Columbus's voyages, he noted that the the tribe had brought up a plant with a bunch of red balls on it. That was the first time ever individuals in Europe had ever heard about a tomato plant. So the Aztecs were making tomato sauce way before the Italians were. But the local soil in Italy is perfect for it. So you go to Hawaii and you look at the volcanoes that are in Hawaii, what comes out of Hawaii? You have incredible macadamia nuts that, again, are not indigenous from there. They're from Australia, and it was brought over And a macadamia nut thrives there, coffee does. What about those delicious onions, the sweet onions that come from Hawaii? So the volcanic nature around the world has some of the best foods that come out of there.
2: That's really interesting. I've never heard that. So, okay, seek out a volcano for your next foraging vacation. You you talked about Sri Lanka. What's another place that you love going to and, and diving into the cuisine?
1: You know Mexico, for sure, because Mexico has so many unique food products that are genetically from there than any place of the world. And what scientists say is because the Gulf of Mexico, that's this big round hole between, you know, Houston and the Yucatan Peninsula and Florida, was where the giant asteroid hit. So that whole circle was created by an asteroid. So all of that stuff that came up and then came back back down to form the yucatan peninsula which has no rivers by the way there's no rivers in the yucatan peninsula so that means that everything was thrown up in the sky and landed down and all of that pot marks are where all that water is stored down there so what created all of that wildness created genetic things that were introduced into the geologic time such as cacao so coffee that was from mexico The tomato was from around there. The avocado, which is indigenous to Uruapan, Mexico, that is from genetically from Mexico, nowhere else in the world. Vanilla, that's another thing. So why are all of these things created in Mexico? They say because of the impact created a whole new geologic time for food. And that's what I find Mexico so incredible for its cuisine. You know, when you go to Mexico, when you say Mexican food, what do you really mean by that? Because there's so many geographic regions around the whole country. As you know, people in the north eat tortillas from wheat and grain. People from the south use corn, kind of like in Italy. It was only people in the north used butter. Nobody in northern Italy used olive oil. Only the people in southern Italy used olive oil. Well, now... All of these cultures are getting kind of mixed together. And you know that's what's fascinating to me about Mexico, Wow,
2: I have a whole new understanding of my favorite cuisine. Now, thank you that is that is fantastic. Okay. so meteors, volcanoes, we know, are are going to be good leads for for great cuisine. What's
1: another of your favorite spot? I'd say Argentina. Out of Argentina comes potatoes, which are way in the north. So the bordering area of Peru, You know, there's 200 different varieties of potatoes and the purpler they are, the much better they are for you. I mean, we genetically just made the big brown Russell potato. But if you look at all the different varieties of of the potato, the waxiness, how good it is for your digestive system, what it actually does to cleanse your livers parts of northern Argentina are incredible. Also, Andean grains are incredibly important for you. So things such as the chia seeds and different sunflower seeds and anything seeds that come out of the Andean region are so good for you. I'll tell you, they're realizing now the importance of what seeds are for you.
2: As a not Indiana Jones meets Anthony Bourdain. How do I, you know, is there a place in Argentina where you think like as a tourist or I can go and have some kind of experience that that is just captures what you're talking about, this kind of, you know, center of ingredients?
1: Yeah. You know, Mendoza is really good because that's on the backside of the Andes. It's a a huge city for wine, but it's also just northern part of the Pampas. So you're going to get incredible meats that have been raised in the Pampas region, which is the largest area of of natural grass in the world. So that's really good for cattle raising. Mendoza is also an area that has farms to the north. So and the Andes in the back. So you're going to get those potatoes, you're going to get grains, you're going to get the beef. And now a big thing is seafood. The Argentine people were like the Irish, you know, they only eat meat and potatoes. Well, now both of them are realizing, wait a minute, we have this incredible sea next to us filled with all this fish and seafood. So Argentina is actually becoming a big seafood destination now as well. So
2: we talked a little bit about, you know, you're in Sri Lanka right after war. You've been in, in Russia Recently, you know, some, some of this involves danger, some of of what you do. Like, where do you draw the line? And, and have there been recent situations where you've kind of gotten a little past that line?
1: I, I did a lot of business also in Tunisia. And I was on the, the southern border between Tunisia and Libya. And that was when Qaddafi was taken out. And so you just had all this chaos going on. And as we were coming back, you know, we were stopped because there was all these big convoys and stuff. And there had just been a gunman that just shot, I think, you know, 100 people in the Bordeaux Museum in Tripoli, right? So I had to, like, deal and go through all of that. And the older I get, the more I draw the line because I appreciate the value of life more. But I'll tell you, when there are terrorists that are looking for foreigners that do not look like locals and they are killing them, that's when I will not go. But in Mexico, that's not happening.
2: Right. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I get asked this question about Mexico all the time. And that's a, a big differentiator, I think, with Mexico is that it is extremely rare for a tourist to be targeted. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah, the they car- they want to the make sure the tourists are fine.
1: The cartel likes American tourists. Yes, They're they are not going to do that.
2: <laughs> yes, they do. All right. I want want to do something fun here. I want to do a quick lightning round with you. I'm going to throw out a few places that we haven't talked about, and I want you to tell me about a food there and then some kind of like quick, interesting uh, little tidbit about that food or ingredient, whatever it is. All right, here we go. Scandinavia.
1: One of the most incredible things up there is called Kalix caviar, and it is the best caviar in the world. It comes from a city called Kalix because two rivers join where the fish spawn, and one river is filled with traces of gold, and the other river is filled with traces of silver. They meet. That fish spawns there. You get those eggs out of there and you have the best caviar in the world. It's called calyx. Calyx, fantastic. Okay, Southern Africa. Boy, I mean, you go down to Southern Africa and there's actually that protea flower that grows out kind of at the end that people are throwing in to make a tea out of that. And that's pretty, pretty unique and spectacular down in South Africa.
2: Protea tea. Okay. Many people's favorite food destination, Japan.
1: What's interesting is in Japan is the soy sauce. Now it's not the, the soy sauce that you're familiar with. So if you go uh, to the northern island where they make the unique soy sauce using the old traditional methods in wood, it's pretty phenomenal.:
2: Life-changing soy sauce in Japan, for sure. Australia.
1: Okay. So Australia has no doubt the finest source of water that exists on the face of the earth. It's on the York Peninsula and it's in these limestone caverns. Someone told me that there was a source of water that was this alkaline water and most alkaline water is not real, but down there in the York Peninsula, it's a game changer. When people figure that place out, look out. The best water is in Australia. Okay. British Isles. I mean, look, food is alcohol too. So you go to the Isla Peninsula and you have the peaty Scotches that come out of there is pretty phenomenal.
2: One thing we haven't really talked about is the US. What what are you finding this interesting here?
1: You've got lobster, you know, from both the Pacific and the Atlantic side. The Atlantic having the claws, the Pacific side has, you know, just the antennas with no claws. The seafood is actually really fascinating to me on both sides.
2: Iberia Peninsula, Spain, Portugal.
1: Well, Spain's phenomenal because you have the famous pork, you know, the black ham, the pata negro, that really only the pig eats that black acorn. And you slice this piece of meat off of that that's been cured. There's not much in the world that tastes so good of that pata negro.
2: One of the things that makes it very
1: hard to be a vegetarian is that that specific meat. How about Israel? Israel's phenomenal because you've got an amazing part of the country that they created this circular irrigation system. So it's awaken up the soil there and they have some of the best vegetables grown in the world out of there, specifically eggplant. So there is an eggplant that is grown in Israel with less seeds. There's places here in the U.S. that will pay an enormous amount of money just for this specific eggplant that's grown in Israel. Also, if you want some of the best falafel in the world with all of the different mixtures of spices and vegetables and stuff, you go go to a falafel dealer in Tel Aviv, and then you come back and tell me if there is anything not
2: better. <laughs> there are a few things better than that, that's for sure. We talked about one side of the Andes in Argentina. What about the other side in Chile?
1: Oh, so, okay, in Chile, you've got some of the most spectacular wine growing regions in the world because you've got that runoff from the Andes Mountains and you've got the Diablo wine that's famous there and you've got amazing grapes. So I would I would be drinking the wine from there. Plus it's a massive av- agricultural region. So you have some of the best grown vegetables and fruits and things like that that come from Chile.
2: What about the UAE or surrounding areas in the Middle East?
1: Okay, so the UAE is essentially a desert And there is a desert radish that if you find this thing, it's the most expensive thing that exists on the face of the earth. And it's a red radish that they only find in the desert. I forgot what the name of it is, but one was given to me as a gift. And I was told you better consume it here because if you're caught exporting that out of the country, you're going to get in big trouble. (laughs) You
2: don't want to get in big trouble. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, John is going to tell us about this incredible herb that he discovered that he says is helping people live to 100 years old.
0: Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes... I've raced
1: the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness.
0: And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of
2: these, I I will call them ghosts of the past.
0: From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs, we hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you, and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel published every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen.
2: Okay, what, what's the next like frontier of of your job for for you? You're always one step ahead. Where are you going next? Where's your next frontier?
1: There are these islands in the northern Philippines. There's like a group of five of them. I think they're called the Boylan Islands, right? And up there, they're again, they're volcanic in origin. There are certain plant species that are very filling, and they almost act as not only good for your body, but actually can control weight. So, The older I get, the more that I'm really looking for food products that have not just taste or not just something that's good for culinary cooking. I'm getting asked from a lot of celebrities and a lot of people to find those ingredients to add to coffee, you know, to add to a candy bar of some type and really push the envelope and look at local people to see, you know, are they living longer? Are they smiling? Are they happier? Are they feeling good? And I've been to so many blue zones around the world where I could kind of feel and target what those ingredients are.
2: So has that informed your diet in a way? Have you gone more vegetarian, like less meat over the years?
1: I have, actually. I I know what a good steak is like. I don't need to really go back and have a whole nother delicious steak again. There was a study done on which city in the world has the oldest people that are over a hundred years old, still active, still loving, still hiking, still working. And it's a city called Acerole in Italy. It's south of the Amalfi coast by about a couple hours. And I went down there and there was a team of doctors and everything that were like, what's going on here? And they found it out. And you won't believe this. So what they found is they found a herb called rosmarino, which is rosemary. And what that city does is it grows wild everywhere, right? And they pick the sprig and they chop it all up and they put it on their eggs in the morning. They cover it in their food. They take the sprig and all the fishermen have it in their bottle of water. Everybody has a sprig of rosemary. And the sap that's in that actual rosemary, that substance has a profound effect on your body. It's it's a medicine essentially that is good for your blood, that cleans your blood, that cleans your liver, that is an antioxidant. And it's just the rosemary has a massive. This is all the studies UCSD shown that that is what they figured out why that village is so big.
2: Okay, so I know now I have. Have a better use for my rosemary plants in my backyard. Yeah, now. In They're not just for uh, you know the occasional dish. So if not completely vegetarian, I think some people are also looking at at bugs as the future of of protein. Like what's your what's your take on that?
1: You got to get past the yuck factor of it, and then you'll start appreciating it more. So if you go down to Oaxaca, these cactuses, there's these gusanos, which are basically called worms. And if they're infused in the local hooch, which most people know down there is not tequila, but it's mezcal, and then they're grilled over a grill, those things are you know, pretty addicting and pretty crunchy and tasty. And they use them in what's called sal de gusano, which is the worm salt. And that's the salt that if you really are a mezcal drinker, you should put that over the, the, the rim of the glass. Now, they're good for protein. Um, they're actually, you know, good for the environment because they're not competing against things humans are for diet. And also there's grasshoppers, which is down there, which is called chapulinas So you roast those grasshoppers, you put them in a taco. And then there's something else called Mexican caviar, which is ant eggs, which they cook in a lot of eggs and stuff down there. Those things are actually really tasty and really good for you. But you know what? People have been eating a lot of bugs and they don't even realize it. Like, what do you think a lobster is? All that is is a bug that crawls on the floor of the ocean. I mean, what's a crab? I mean, that's kind of a bug, too.
2: Very expensive bug these days, too, crab.
1: Yeah. So you just got to get over that yuck factor.
2: John, that was awesome. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for for joining us today.
1: Great. Had fun.
0: And now... For the Wallin wrap up,
2: man, that was fun talking to John. I met with him in the Malibu studios, and and we did our interview there. And I could seriously talk to that guy forever. In fact, I really want to. I want to tag along with that guy on on some of his adventures. He has a he has a real love for Mexico, which which of course we share. And and uh, I don't know. I just think traveling with him would bring a whole new perspective to so many of my favorite destinations, and then also you know places that I haven't been. If you liked that little. Dose of uh, food history that we got from John. You are going to love my very special guest on the wrap here today. Claudia Hanna is her name. She is a food historian, a culinary travel guide, and a podcast host. She specializes in Greece, Cyprus, Turkey, and other Mediterranean countries. So, let's get to it with Claudia Hanna. Claudia, great to have you.
0: Thank you so very much, Bruce.
2: So, you just launched a podcast. If this food could talk, tell us about that. It just, it just came out. Give us, a, give us a quick synopsis.
0: It is a brand new podcast with APT Podcast Studios. That's American Public Television. And it is a food history show. So we go back in time. We go across the world trying to find crazy stories about the origins of the foods we love. And then we bring them to you. And then I get to cook with you.
2: So you're actually a food historian yourself, obviously, which is, you know, a big reason why you're you're hosting this show. Olive oil, I happen to know, is is your, your specialty or one of them. How do you get into that? How did that line of work, becoming an olive oil expert?
0: So I teach Mediterranean cooking classes and I lead culinary tours overseas. And I'm ethnically of Egyptian and Greek descent. And so I started to, like, go down this path, like, you know what, people are talking about – authentic foods. And and so I was like, you know what, let me teach you guys about how to make all this stuff that I kind of grew up with. Regarding olive oil, though, specifically, I've got orchards back in Cyprus where my family has a home. And so we've been picking it and making our own, pressing our own olives for at least a decade, if not longer.
2: Guessing Cyprus might be part of the answer to my next question, which was like where... Do I go to find the very best? Like olive oil and olives, both. I mean, I guess the, the olives are so different everywhere. Does olive oil differ that much from place to place?
0: Absolutely. It all's about the terroir. So if you know anything about wines, which you, you might, you know, in California, you guys have got wonderful wines as well as wonderful olive oils. It's all about the terroir of the land. So if you've got some land that is by the sea, your olive oil is going to have a little bit more of a salt salty air and you're going to want to pair it with foods from the fish like from seafood it's all about or versus if you're up in the mountains you might get some olive oils that are more heartier and has more of a sage flavoring it's really all about the terroir what is it growing around and then trying to pair it with foods from that same region
2: now, what about the olives themselves? I mean, there's so many different varieties. I think a lot of, in the, in the old days here in the U.S., it was like green or black, and that right. was it. And now we have so many options, which I love. Mm-hmm. But what are some of your favorite personal spots?
0: First of all, did you know that there's actually no difference between a green and a black olive? Black olives are nothing more than ripened green olives. We've got actually, like, I think it's more than 100 different varieties of olives. Some of them, with the, like the Kalamatas, are grown in certain regions. M- one of my favorites is the Koroneki, which is in Greece. It's more in the Sparta region of Greece, the Peloponnese. That's one of my favorites. I find it to have a little bit more of a meatier taste, and it has a bit of a bite. So what you're looking for in a good olive oil is a mono or singular cultivar, cold-pressed.
2: Like single vineyard, essentially. Basically. Same idea. Okay. All right. You, like you mentioned that you lead trips to a lot of these places, Cyprus and, and Greece and Egypt. Aside from the great olive oil and olives, what makes these destinations fascinating from a food perspective and how does that kind of play out in these in these experiences?
0: Since I've lived and since I am from this part of the world and I've. I've got family and friends and all that kind of stuff. I really try to take you guys for an authentic taste of the med. So you're not going to go to the large-scale producers of olives and olive oil. I take you to the little mom-and-pop shops that have had generations of growers in the same family. It's more off the beaten path, and that's kind of what most people like. You're cooking in caves with Turkish families, which is really, really fun, after like exploring ancient cities. I mean, we're we're talking about underground cities, and then you kind of go above ground to their cave dwellings, and then you just literally have a nice stew. Usually it's a goat stew with some vegetables inside of it. And then a cup of Turkish tea, and the owners try to chat with you for a little bit.
2: That sounds pretty good. Goat stew with a cup of Turkish tea. How do these country, I mean, clearly there's a lot of Commonalities between the cuisine of these different cultures that are that are surrounded by or you know surrounding the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. How do they differ? Like, what is what are some of the standout things between uh, you know going to Turkey and then hopping over to Greece or to Cyprus or or to Egypt? I mean, Egypt especially.
0: Sure. So no, the, uh, as you can imagine, the Mediterranean has similar climate, so it grows similar vegetables, uh, fruits. But it comes down to spices. So when you think of like North African cuisine, that's when you get your, your cumin, your saffron, your thicker, heavier spices, the harissa, and actually I have to say your grains. So you're going to focus on bulgur wheat and frika in North African cuisine. Say, for example, say Greek cuisine or Italian cuisine, where it's going to be more pasta and orzo and more tomatoes and garlic and onions. So it, it really comes down to which spices they have access to and what they've gotten used to cooking.
2: And what about, what are we pairing this with in terms of, we, we talked a little bit about wines, but what are, what are some of your kind of favorite wines to, to pair from these regions?
0: One of my favorite things to do in the world is to do this olive and wine pairing thing. And I love teaching it with all my friends. They come over and I make them do this. So I do like a black olives with tomatoes and garlic, like a whole clove of garlic, cherry tomatoes, black, black olives. I like the gemlik. Turkish olives for this particular recipe. I throw them in a roasting pan and put a slather of olive oil all over it and some salt, maybe a little oregano if I have it, if I think about it. Throw it in the oven at like 450 degrees for about 10 to 15 minutes, making sure you nice and like saute, like turn over that pan all the time so it doesn't charcoal on one side and not the other. And then pair it with a dark cabernet sauvignon. This is a fabulous, Little snack, like an appetizer, as guests are like rolling into your house, do this. I'm telling you, it is a great little like starting moth. If you have some baguette, go for it. If not, they're just gonna be happy eating these like roasted tomatoes that have like popped in the oven with the caramelized garlic and the black olives. They're super hot, so be careful.
2: One pan, garlic, olive tomatoes with a Cabernet. That's surprising and sounds fantastic. It's so good. I'm going to be trying that sooner than later. Add some salt, add some salt, do
0: it. I'm telling you, it's one of my favorites.
2: All right, what about, so Cyprus, I think uh, of those destinations is probably one that people from the US know less about. It's Mm -hmm. not as common as maybe Turkey or Greece or Egypt. Give us a day on Cyprus.
0: So first thing I like to do is take everybody to the farmer's market in the morning, which sounds so crazy because it is not like the farmer's markets in the United States. It's not like specialized apricot jellies and whatever. We, it is literally, <laughs> I'm sorry, I love apric- I love my <laughs> farmer's markets here too, but it's like so funny when you compare it to the mounds of eggplant that you can purchase in six different varieties. So I like to go to the farmer's market and find the little producers of cheeses and olives and, and spices and then pick through them, teach everybody how, what's going on and how to like put those together. Then we head back to a small producer. Usually I try to cook with a local chef. And then in the afternoon, we're usually on a sunset cruise and jumping in the water and stuff like that.
2: So visiting that area in the heart, I mean, that's a great time to visit vineyards in California or or wherever. But how is that a different experience in in this part of the world with the olive harvest and, and everything?
0: It depends on the season. So we're actually the month. So in September or end of August is when we're harvesting our grapes to turn them into wine as well as just eating fresh grapes. And then we move into October where our early October is gonna be when we do our pomegranates. And then again, we turn them in a pomegranate syrup, which we use this almost like a balsamic reduction. We make it out, out of sour, pomegranates. And it reduces. And I we I use that pomegranate syrup on top of salads. Think of a caprese salad or on top of roasted meats as I'm throwing them on. So it's great. It's a little fun, little trick that I've learned. And then when we move into the later fall, October into November is when we're doing olives. And that becomes table olives and then into olive oil towards the end of the season of harvest.
2: You're making me think about those, those pomegranate presses that you see in, F- in Israel and else all over that region. And the juice that comes out of that is I Love so that good. stuff. That must, it is amazing. That must be a nice thing to refresh you as you're picking uh, olives or pomegranates or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So let's say we're not traveling with Claudia Hanna and we're, we're in this part of the world. What, what's your advice for getting off the beaten path? What are some kind of tricks of the trade that enable you to have those types of experiences on your own?
0: I think social media has been one of our best little gifts for all the problems it gives us, for all the great things it does, too. I throw out some on comments uh, on my Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever, and I'm like, has anyone been to this location? Has anyone got friends of friends? And so you kind of find people who are from that region and can give you, like, go to that barbecue shop because it's freaking amazing. No one else knows about it. You can do the Yelp and all that good stuff too. But I've found that the best way to do it is through friends of friends.
2: Okay. Friends of friends. And and you're a good friend to have in that world for sure. All right. Where can we learn more about these trips that you lead? Do you have a website?
0: I do. It's livelikeagoddess.com.
2: All right. Livelikeagoddess.com for some incredible food adventures through the Mediterranean. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And yes, thank you so much for learning more about If This Food Could Talk.
2: We will be tuning in. We'd like to thank John Sutton and Claudia Hanna for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on some of the destinations that we talked about today, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash Travel That Matters. Travel That Matters is produced and edited for Kurtco Media by A.J. Mosley. Marketing by Katrin Scapurtis and hosted by me, Bruce Wallen, and we will see you down the road.